from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes people aver that uh, rich folks like to have all the good stuff for themselves and uh, keep everybody else away from it. This week, a news story appeared about uh, an organization, a conservancy that owns a stretch of beach up the coast from Santa Monica here in Southern California. Um, It's a beach that's hard to reach or find. Quote, it can be very difficult to find this public access down to this hidden beach. So the conservancy, the Mountains Recreation and Conservation Authority, which owns the beach in question, Lechuza Beach, put up signs. They lasted for 18 days before the city took them down. The uh, Conservancy took the issue to the local city council in a community you've probably heard of. The city council maintains their support of public beach access, which is protected under state law for the entire coast of California. As a matter of fact, individuals have a right to get to any part of the beach on the coast in the entire state. How woke is that? The city says, though, that the Conservancy, the MRCA, can apply for the proper permits to get the signs reinstalled. Public beach access has been a constant issue in that coastal city over the years. Some residents have even hired bodyguards to deter beachgoers from using trails near their homes, the uh, residents' homes, to find and enjoy the coast. And the city, I'm sure you know by now, is Malibu. Oh, Malibu, yes. Malibu, yes. Malibu de bum bum. That's right. In uh, more important news... The United States announced last uh, week that it is sending or planning to send, fixing to send, new weapons to Ukraine or Ukraine. And we await the uh, final determination on the pronunciation of the country's name. The weapons are cluster munitions, which uh, more than 100 countries have signed an agreement to ban from usage because um, they put out lots of sub-weapons, many of which don't explode on contact with the land, with the ground, and uh, sit there waiting for dogs, kids, other creatures to find them months, years later when they do explode. And that's not nice. The United States is not a signatory to... uh, the banning of cluster weapons. But uh, we still look down on them, even though we have used them and are now sending them to Ukraine. But the uh, explanation for sending them at this point in time is that the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition, and so are we. We're running out of the ammunition, in particular... I mean, at 1.5 millimeter somethings that uh, they need 
and that we've been sending them for the past year and a half which would raise the question haven't we been replacing them u.s now says we're, we're gonna start grinding up the uh system that makes those weapons to replace them but we haven't done that yet and so we must resort to these um sub-moral weapons in the meantime and i just can't help thinking we just found out that we're running out of them i mean the ukrainians have been using ammunition all this time of course because they're in a war we're not it's a surprise to the united states government that we're suddenly running out of these uh munitions that we've been sending to ukraine it suggests to me ladies and gentlemen that we need i know we hate bureaucracy and we hate bureaucrats but we need one more government job at the defense department the assistant secretary of counting things hello welcome to the show
On the other hand, I'm sure we've got somebody who knows whether we have as many nuclear weapons as Russia does. Don't you? From just south of Malibu, the home of the homeless, Santa Monica, California, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, news of our friend, The Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Nuclear power should not form part of Australia's plans to reach net zero emissions. Why? Because it's too expensive and slow. That's according to the final report of a project that models, hmm, models, oh, sorry, models how Australia might meet its 2050 climate target. It's called the Net Zero Australia Report, produced by a partnership between major academic institutions. What do they know? and the management consultancy New Group. Uh, the report says the federal government of Australia has a major role to play in accelerating all options that could make a material contribution to getting to net zero. The report includes major investment in batteries, solar, onshore wind, pumped hydro, and transmission. Among renewable options, offshore wind was found to have the most uncertain pipeline report concludes first power from offshore wind projects needed to occur in 2030 but the report concludes nuclear power should not be factored into net zero plans and states that to reduce renewable targets and the belief that nuclear will be deployed later at scale would create a material risk of not achieving net zero or of doing so at an excessive cost richard bolt of the new NOUS group said, quote, nuclear power should not be in our plans because it's too expensive and slow. Only a dramatic fall in costs and prolonged renewable constraints would prompt a rethink, unquote. The report warns Australia's path to net zero carbon emissions in 2050 will require faster, broader, and more innovative decarbonization efforts and the pipeline of large-scale solar and onshore wind projects risks falling short of the required build rate. The report had uh, six model scenarios, all of which included a fleet of gas-fired peaking plants, peaking with an A, to provide backup to renewables and storage, but with minimal actual use of gas. The report also finds carbon capture, utilization, and storage is a crucial component of a net zero strategy. Let's go capture that carbon, ladies and gentlemen, despite the technology not having delivered meaningful emission cuts to date. Uh, it's been a bad date. The report was produced by the University of Melbourne, the University of Queensland, Princeton University, as well as this outfit called the new NOUS group. Kevin Batterham, an emeritus professor at the University of Melbourne, chair of the Net Zero Australia Steering Committee, said there were, quote, too many uncertainties to map a single path to net zero. We need more options, stronger investment drivers, and a larger pipeline of projects. But not nukes. 
from The Guardian. And the Associated Press reports on um, what happened to St. Louis when the U.S. was pushing for the atomic bomb. The federal government and companies responsible for nuclear bomb production and atomic waste storage sites in the St. Louis area in the mid-20th century were aware of health risks, spills, improperly stored contaminants, and other problems, but often ignored them. That's according to the documents reviewed by the AP. Decades later, even with much of the cleanup complete, that is to say, now, the after-effects haunt the region. The AP reports federal health investigators have found an increased cancer risk for some people who, as children, played in a creek contaminated with uranium waste. Who put that there? A grade school closed last year amid radiation concerns. A landfill operator is spending millions to keep underground smoldering from reaching nuclear waste illegally dumped in the 1970s. The AP saw hundreds of pages of internal memos, inspection reports, and other items dating to the early 1950s found nonchalance and indifference to the risks of materials used in the development of nukes during and after World War II. The story uh, I'm sharing with you is part of an ongoing collaboration between the Missouri Independent, a nonprofit newsroom called Muck Rock, and the AP. The government documents were obtained by outside researchers through Federal Information Act and shared with the news organizations. There's, uh, for example, a 1966 government inspection report on a site in St. Louis County, which noted that, quote, in a number of places along the roadway, material that later tested positive for radioactivity, quote, appeared to have fallen from vehicles, unquote. Follow-up inspection three months later found that the material was still sitting on the road. The company involved, Continental Mining and Milling, said it was having trouble with the contractor, a lone man who used a shovel and broom to pick up the atomic waste and put it in a pickup truck when he used his shovel and broom. The company was not penalized. The AP review did not uncover evidence of criminal wrongdoing. What it did find were repeated instances where companies, contractors, or the government could have addressed significant problems, but didn't. St. Louis was part of a geographically scattered national effort to build a nuclear bomb that was tested in New Mexico. Congratulations, New Mexico. Much of the work in the St. Louis area involved uranium, where Mallinckrodt Chemical Company was a major processor of the element into a concentrated form that could be further refined elsewhere into the material that made it into weapons. That uh, began Mallinckrodt producing, uh, processing uranium just after Pearl Harbor. In 1946, the government bought land near St. Louis Airport and began trucking nuclear waste from Mallinckrodt's facility. Meanwhile, starting in 1941, the government began making explosives at a new plant near St. Louis, area called Weldon Spring production there ended in 1945, but not before soil sediments and some springs were contaminated. 
1957, the Atomic Energy Commission opened a plant at Wilden Spring. Mallinckrodt moved its uranium processing there. Radioactive waste contaminated the area, including a large quarry, which eventually became a Superfund cleanup site in 1987, and the rest of the Wilden Spring site was added two years later. A co-director of a documentary about the St. Louis region's nuclear history said after the war, some companies thought that byproducts of the radioactive material could be sold. But that didn't work. So the waste moved to new sites contaminating more land near more people. In 1966, the Atomic Energy Commission demolished and buried buildings at the airport site. Continental Mining moved the waste to a nearby community, piling it in a heap, the AEC said at the time. Radioactive barrels lay outside the fence. Storage was so haphazard that even the path to the site was contaminated by trucks that spread waste on their hulls from 1966 to 1969. Tons of that nuclear waste flowed into a nearby creek, contaminated the often flooding waterway in adjacent, adjacent yards for 14 miles, according to state and federal investigators. In 1973, a uranium processor, Cotter Corporation, took hazardous leached barium sulfate to a local landfill. The material contained uranium residue. The government cleanup of that Weldon Spring area is complete. The site is considered permanently damaged and will require oversight into perpetuity. Rather than remove the waste, the government built a 75-tall, 75-foot-tall mound covered in rock to serve as a permanent disposal cell for much of the waste. The government says the site is safe. Some local residents still worry. Tens of thousands of people live within a few miles. Federal officials now plan to remove some of the waste at the landfill and cap the rest. Cleanup of the creek is far along, but isn't expected to finish until 2038. Cleanup efforts have cost taxpayers more than $1 billion dollars Millions more will be needed to finish the job. The Atomic Energy Commission, historically responsible for the nation's nuclear weapons program, was abolished in the 1970s in no small part because of public criticism of its handling of nuclear safety. That's in the hands now of the Department of Energy. And that department has publicly detailed the environmental damage earlier waste mismanagement caused to people and the environment. And here's the good news. Now cleanup at several former nuclear program sites, including in St. Louis, is in the hands of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Let's let them try. Finally, a very short item from the Japanese newspaper Asahi Shimbun about um, a survey of Japanese cities as possible hosts to store nuclear waste. This is quoting the Asahi Shimbun. Without any prospect of securing the final disposal facility for high-level nuclear waste, Japan's 
nuclear energy policy has been compared to, quote, an apartment without a toilet, unquote. Clean, cheap, safe, no toilet, our friend the atom. And now a brief Olympic update. A Tokyo court this week sentenced the former president of a major Japanese advertising agency called ADK to a prison term for bribing a Tokyo Olympic Games organizing committee executive way back in 2021. The prison sentence was suspended. Shinichi Ueno, he's 69 years old, was sentenced to a prison term of two years. It's suspended for four. He was accused of paying about $100,000 to Hawayuki Takahashi. He's almost 80. I know the feeling. Who exerted influence over the committee's sponsorship and marketing contracts for the Olympics. The ruling was in a series of Tokyo Olympic bribery cases involving Takahashi. Pretty much like one a week for a while. He has been charged with accepting bribes from Ueno and others in return for helping companies win contracts as Olympic sponsors or marketing agents. Because it's a movement. You need to... According to the indictment, Ueno colluded with a former senior official, a couple of them, of the ad agency, to have their company selected as a marketing agent to solicit sponsors for the event. They sent the money between November 2019 and January 2022 to a consulting firm headed by Takahashi. The uh, other two gents in ADK, one was handed a prison sentence of one year and six months suspended, and the other one was given a term of one year suspended. The rulings have been finalized. They were among the 15 people indicted for bribing Takahashi. Nine of them have been found guilty. The Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one every day.
from Santa Monica, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Well, some good news, if you're LG Electronics, that company, I believe it's uh, South Korean, has outlined its ambition to grow revenue, not, well, not quite double over the next six and a half years, 51 billion to 78 billion, thanks to ads streamed to its uh, televisions and subscription services for its appliances. Quote, LG will innovate with a platform-based service business model that continuously generates profits, such as content and subscriptions to the hardware-based business that's already in. LG called this a customer engagement-centered business model that relies on appliances already present in customers' homes, such as the 200 million strong fleet of its smart TVs currently in use. Those uh, televisions will soon have content, services, and product ads expanded in an attempt to turn the company into a media and entertainment service provider. Yeah, that's a real good idea. <laughs> Ask the studios. Right now, LG has already offered a taste of its intentions in 2022. It revealed a scheme called Evolving Appliances for You that promised software upgrades to home appliances. The company offered the example of a family that moves to a different home and different climate and upgrades its clothes dryer with routines suited to local conditions. The entrance to subscription media comprises part of what the CEO described as a transformation for LG to a smart life solutions company. The goal he's hoping to hit by 2030 is the CEO, William Cho. This uh, comes amid an explosion in, in such services, according to the Register, British Tech uh, Journal. IBM found 300% growth in subscriptions in a decade leading up to last year. There are also signs consumers are tiring of subscriptions. The term subscription fatigue has emerged to describe the frustration consumers feel when their credit card statements reveal growing numbers of monthly membership payments. Regulators have also noticed some sharp subscription practices, especially deterrence to cancellation. The FTC recently considered stronger regulations of that business model, LG is undeterred by such controversies and seemingly also unworried that customers might push back. LG's strategy announcement comes after it boldly exited its loss-making mobile phone and solar panel businesses to, quote, focus on future high-growth areas. Somebody else can make those solar panels. And speaking of the FTC, it has started looking into whether OpenAI's ChatGPT is breaking consumer protection laws 
by causing reputational privacy damage. This also from the register. Claims to that effect were made last month in private civil litigation when a radio host, radio host, in the state of Georgia sued OpenAI, alleging the chat GPT defamed him and damaged his reputation by falsely associating his, uh, associating his name with a criminal issue. In April, a mayor in Australia threatened a defamation lawsuit against OpenAI after ChatGP2 supposedly his accused him of involvement in a foreign bribery scandal. The man's lawyers gave OpenAI 28 days to repair its AI model. Since then, no further word of litigation. Amid these disputes, the FTC wants OpenAI open to open up its code books, like you'd think it might do because of its name, OpenAI. According to the Washington Post, the trade watchdog, the FTC this week sent the machine learning outfit a 20-page civil investigative demand letter seeking details about the company, its AI model marketing and training, model risk assessment, mitigations for privacy, and prompt injection attacks and details about data collection. The letter also requests numerous company documents including contracts with partners since 2017 and internal communications about the potential of AI models to, quote, produce inaccurate statements about individuals, unquote, part of its uh, reputation for hallucination. OpenAI didn't immediately respond to a request for comment, nor did the FTC. And... In order to comply with data protection regimes, AI chatbots, chatbots, and associated machine learning applications are going to have to be able to forget what they've learned, says that same tech journal. The register, it's not yet evident they can handle that requirement. Researchers affiliated with Australia's National Science Agency and Australian National University recently issued a paper on the subject claiming the right to be forgotten or right to erasure under Europe's GDPR. The academics argue that large language models such as ChatGP2 and uh, some others from other tech giants will find compliance challenging because they process and store information in a way that's different from search engines, which had been subject to a right to forgetting since the GDPR passed in uh, the EU. But it's uh, not just that law. The California Consumer Privacy Act, Japan's Act on the Protection of Personal Information, and Canada's proposed Consumer Privacy Protection Act all have data deletion or correction provisions. And there's also the EU's new AI Act to consider. The potential for legal entanglement is not merely theoretical. In March, Italian authorities temporarily suspended access to chat GPT on the grounds that it failed to comply with data protection rules. They relented the following month. That same month, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada opened an investigation into chat GPT data compliance. The investigation was expanded the following month and remains ongoing. France and Spain are also conducting inquiries. The Australia academics observed that while the right to be forgotten was initially applied to Google search, it is relevant to large language models. 
and not just because they're being used to augment search services. One problem, they say, is that training data sets may not be disclosed. Another is that prompting trained models Mm. Oh, sorry. To uh, see how they respond doesn't guarantee that the text output contains the entire list of information stored in the model that affect the output. Then there's the issue of hallucinated data, which the researchers say cannot be accessed reliably. Removing data from a large language model's training data set doesn't affect existing trained models that are already in use and building a new version of the model can take several months more than the delay allowed under Europe's privacy law and that's to say nothing of the expense of retraining large language models. Removing data from a trained model is difficult. Ways to do so are being explored. There's a machine unlearning technique called SISA short for sharded, isolated, sliced, and aggregated training. Back to the issue of hallucination from these uh, large language models. Hallucinated data isn't contained in the training data set of the model. Hallucinated data from the model is hard to eliminate. The academics say in their paper, quote, even if some hallucinated data could be removed from the model, side effects and new hallucination might be introduced. Eliminating hallucination from large language models is impossible now, unquote. Maybe that the right to be forgotten is fundamentally at odds with the technical persistence of data memory, at least until bit rot sets in. In 2018, Boston University researchers published a paper entitled Humans Forget machines remember it's a smart world now the apologies of the week so Dayline Taipei a professor teaching a summer course for high school students at the National Taiwan University apologized this week for any emotional distress he may have caused with an experiment in which he placed a goldfish in a blender and asked for a volunteer to turn it on. Lai Chung Xiong, a distinguished professor in National Cheng Kung University's Department of Foreign Languages and Literature, issued the apology amid public criticism over the experiment during the class at the summer camp on humanities this week. In a post on the internet forum, Diard, one of the high school students, complained that Lai had failed to clearly explain in advance the purpose and procedure of the experiment, which resulted in tears among several students who fled the classroom. It was crazy. He wasn't doing an experiment with us. He was doing an experiment on us, the student wrote. Later, Lai released a statement through the university in which he explained that the experiment was based on Helena, an art installation in a Danish museum in 2000, which featured a line of blenders containing goldfish and was reported on by the BBC. In that instance, one museum goer actually did push the button on the blender, resulting in the deaths of two goldfish, and a lawsuit 
filed by local animal rights activists. However, a court subsequently ruled that as the fish had died instantly, the, instant, the installation did not constitute animal abuse, Lai said. According to the artist, the purpose of his installation was to force people to wrestle with their conscience and test their sense of right and wrong. In his own summer course, Lai said, he asked a teaching assistant to pour water into a blender and see if it was working. Lai said he then dropped a goldfish into the water and at that point he asked any students who were uncomfortable with the experiment to leave the room. When he asked for a volunteer, Lai said, a male student came forward and pressed the button unaware that the blender would not work because the teaching assistant had covertly unplugged it. At that point, Lai said he explained to the class the history and purpose of the experiment. He said 20 of the estimated 200 students in the class had opted to leave the room before the experiment and the subsequent discussion about the value of life. Nonetheless, Lai said he wished to apologize for his failure to consider the emotional distress some students might have suffered as the result of the experiment. Just a few months after winning season 21 of American Idol, it's understandable that Im Tongi feels nervous performing for large crowds. The musician sang the U.S. National Anthem during the 2023 Major League Baseball Home Run Derby at T-Mobile Park this week and didn't take it off his hat. Afterward, Tongi posted to social media and explained why he forgot to adhere to the gesture of respect. Quote, first try singing the national anthem. So nervous that it was in front of such a huge crowd and apologized for being so nervous and forgot to take off the hat. The 18-year-old singer wrote on YouTube. He went further in a tweet. Tens of thousands of people I walk out on. My uncle reminds me to move, remove my hat before I start singing. I remember a few seconds later the nerves took in and didn't remember until it was all done. I will try to do better next time. Unquote. The Baltimore City Department of Transportation acknowledged this week, af uh, uh, Wednesday afternoon, as a matter of fact, in a Facebook post that it had committed an unfortunate spelling error on a street sign in the 1000 block of Orleans Street. It chided itself for the mistake. Quote, yes, we saw it. Yes, we messed up. Yes, we just replaced that sign. Yes, we'll stop using chat GPT to make road signs. It'll be fixed by morning. Sorry about that. Unquote. It, it concluded with a grimacing emoji. This after a Facebook user poked fun at the mistake with a reference to the former slogan that declared Baltimore as, quote, the city that reads, unquote. It's not immediately clear if other street signs on Orleans Street had the typo, and the Baltimore Banner, which published this story, didn't say what the spelling mistake was. CNN apologized this week for misgendering transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. That's in a segment that aired this week about Mulvaney's role in a right-wing boycott against Bud Light. Bud Light has faced months of conservative backlash over a brief partnership with Mulvaney, 
that involved a sponsored Instagram host with him holding a special tribute can of Bud Light. Sales of the beverage have plummeted since then. Bud Light last month lost its spot as the nation's best-selling beer. In a segment on the controversy, CNN national correspondent Ryan Young used male pronouns to refer to Mulvaney, a transgender woman. The anchor of CNN at that point, Kate Baldwin, issued an on-air apology for the segment on Wednesday. Quote, in a segment about transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney, she was mistakenly referred to by the wrong pronouns. CNN aims to honor individuals' ways of identifying, of identifying themselves. We apologize for that error. Apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, the copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, finally, news of the crypto winter. Alex Mashinsky, the founder and former CEO of bankrupt cryptocurrency lender Celsius Network, was arrested and charged with fraud this week, and three federal regulatory agencies sued him and his company. Having a good week, Mashinsky was charged with seven criminal counts, including securities fraud, commodities fraud, and wire fraud. Take your pick of which fraud you'd like to. While Celsius former chief revenue officer... Ronnie Cohen Pavon was charged with four criminal counts, according to the indictment. Lawyers for Mashinsky and Celsius did not immediately respect or respond to requests for comment, and the other guy's attorney couldn't immediately be reached. Not answering the phone? Hmm? Mashinsky is one of several crypto moguls to be indicted in another blow for the industry, according to Reuters, which has been experiencing a reckoning after a slump in crypto prices led to several companies collapsing. The SEC, along with other regulators, which also filed lawsuits this week, accused Mashinsky and his company of touting Celsius as safe, akin to a traditional bank, even as they took increasingly risky steps to deliver promised high yields on customer deposits. Celsius used emails with phrases like, Pour yourself a cup of profits! To promote its interest earning program, it promised investors returns of up to 17%. <laughs> yeah, a bit uh, gullible, the customers, you might say. The firm lost millions of dollars as customers raced to withdraw funds. The then CEO and Celsius continued to claim the company was financially secure and had enough funds to meet withdrawals, according to regulators. Celsius was one of the first in a series of bankruptcies in the cryptocurrency sector last year. It filed shortly after Singapore-based crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital and rival crypto lender Voyager Digital did the same. The SEC said Celsius engaged in risky trading practices and made uncollateralized loans, Tom. Uncollateralized loans. Yes, despite telling investors that it didn't. The company also falsely claimed to have raised $50 million from its initial token sale, claimed to have 1 million active users, when in fact it only ever had around 500,000, many of whom were no longer active. I don't think that means they're not still breathing, but the FTC said it had reached a settlement 
with Celsius that will permanently ban it from handling customers' assets. I'll take over. The Department of Justice accused Mashinsky of allegedly lying about profitability, generally a refusal to acknowledge what Celsius leadership was apparently saying among itself all along, that the company was a Ponzi scheme, like some other crypto initiatives. AlgoFi, I like the names, AlgoFi, the borrowing and lending protocol built on decentralized finance blockchain Algorand, is going to shut down. According to an announcement this week, developers' belief in the strength of Algorand's technology and novel consensus algorithm has not wavered. However, the platform will nevertheless wind down soon. Quote, a confluence of events has taken place that it no longer makes building and maintaining the AlgoFi platform to the highest standards a viable path for our company. Due to this, we will begin sunsetting the platform and put the platform in withdrawal-only mode shortly." Unquote. The AlgoFi protocol had $25 million in total value locked in at the time of publication, down from its $135 million peak in February. In April, the SEC charged cryptocurrency exchange Bitrex with operating an unregistered exchange in the U.S., Algorand was one of six tokens deemed to be a security by the SEC. To date, 68 cryptocurrencies are currently seen as securities by the SEC, meaning they're not secure. And lending protocol Geist Finance is shutting down permanently due to losses from a hack of multi-chain. According to a social media post from the app's development team, Geist contracts were paused on July 6th, then resumed in withdraw and repay only mode. Three days later, the latest post confirms the team doesn't plan on reopening lending and borrowing on Geist. It's a lending protocol running on the Phantom network. With an F, it had over $29 million worth of crypto assets locked in its contracts before the hack. And it, before the hack, Geist allowed users to borrow, lend, or used bridged tokens from the multi-chain platform as collateral. That's the platform that was hacked. And then it goes into a remarkable amount of jargon. Check this out. Geist allowed users to um, use bridged tokens as collateral, including bridged versions of USD coin, Tether, Bitcoin, and Ether. It used Chainlink oracles to track the prices of these assets to determine their collateral and loan values. According to the Post, these oracles have stopped producing reliable information. They are now listing the values of the non-bridged or real versions of each coin, which are more than four times the value of their multi-chain derivatives. And the team explained that. But at that point, my eyes glazed over too. Just one more great name, though. 
It's now impossible to re-enable lending. Doing so would result in bad debt for holders of non-multi-chain coins, such as MTM, Magic Internet Money. The uh, Geist people say nobody is to blame except at multi-chain org here. That's the institution that was... Institution? Outfit that was hacked. That happened on July 7th. Over $100 million withdrawn, including and involving Doge Chain, Phantom, and Moon River. The multi-chain team called the transactions abnormal and warned users to stop using the protocol. The team stopped short of calling it a hack or exploit. The jargon continues, but not here. Happy crypto winter, everybody. Finally, microplastics are found in the soil of farms used to grow crops. That reduces the crop's quality, according to an analysis of six strawberry farms in California. Well, what do they know? Plastics are used regularly in industrial agriculture, such as in irrigation pipes or the sheets that cover crops. Many studies have shown, according to new scientists, that small fragments of plastic known as microplastics, are widespread in the environment, including on farms. The effect might have on soil isn't well understood. Quote, microplastics might impair the soil's properties. They might disintegrate and further leach into the groundwater system. And they can also interact with other existing co-contaminants in the environment. But we really don't have much data about these things yet said a scientist at Cal Poly speaking at a conference in Lyon, France this week. So uh, the scientist that said that and her colleagues took soil samples from 20 strawberry fields for, uh, for, 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 no, across California farms and examined each for microplastics. They then compared this to health indicators for the soil such as its moisture content, its level of nutrients, like your nitrogen, and its respiration rate. Measure of how much carbon dioxide microbes give off as they turn oxygen into energy, a proxy for soil microbial activity. Team found that higher microplastic levels are closely linked with lower levels of soil moisture, nutrients, 
and respiration. Each of these could lead to a reduced growth rate for plants and smaller fruit. But don't we all want smaller fruit? Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this week's of the show. Back next week at the same time over these same radio stations and on your audio device of choice whenever you want. And it would just be like having smaller fruit if you want it. If you'd agree to be with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts. Hurry, selling out soon. Not me, the shirts. And the playlist of the music heard here on. All at harryshare.com. And I'm a stubborn kind of a cuss. I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates from WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless, just south of Malibu. Malibu, yes. Malibu de Bam Bam. <laughs>